This is the story of a week. My week. Monday during the day, I made the very difficult decision to not attend the Martin Luther King rally in March. I wanted to be there. I felt like I should be there. And my soul needed to create at home. So I began a long overdue baby quilt for my youngest nephew, Nathaniel. And I listened to my favorite Martin Luther King speech, which I try to listen to every year, A Time to Break Silence, delivered at Riverside Church on April 4th, 1967, precisely one year before his assassination. It was the speech in which he came out against the war in Vietnam, stating that he was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and attack it as such. And this move on King's part caused some strife and some divisiveness in the movement. The speech was written by Dr. Vincent Harding, a beloved teacher and mentor of mine, who at least at one time identified as Mennonite. But he was gravely disappointed in the white Mennonite church for not showing up for the movement. That's a theme to which we'll return. I listened to King's measured, steady, strong voice repeat these now familiar words. I am convinced that if we are to get on the right side of the world revolution, we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must rapidly begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets, the giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. I felt convicted, again, as I listened to these familiar words. Convicted, it's true, but also proud Proud because I knew Dr. Harding, who penned these words. Proud because this is when the movement got explicitly global and anti-military and started to feel sort of Mennonite to me, which is probably, undoubtedly, Dr. Harding's touch. Proud because I'm woke just enough as a white person to know that King shouldn't be reduced to I have a dream, just because that's a more palatable King for white folks to remember than the king of the giant triplets of racism, militarism, and materialism. That evening, I went to Seattle Town Hall to hear letter from a Birmingham jail read aloud. And now, this is a letter that I also really love. It's one of my favorites in King's canon. And I've read it many times, but this was my first time hearing it aloud because it wasn't a speech. We don't have recordings of King speaking these words aloud. And so I'd never heard it aloud before. And out of the gates, I heard, my dear fellow clergymen. All right, I'm listening. (laughs) I felt myself addressed, and I felt that earlier pride melt away just a bit as I prepared my heart and my mind to be addressed, to be confronted and challenged. King, as many of you know, was met with unusually harsh conditions in the Birmingham jail. He spent a lot of time in solitary confinement. And an ally was disallowed from seeing his lawyer for a very long time. 
Anyway, an ally smuggled in a newspaper to King from April 12th, which included a call for unity, a statement made by eight white Alabama clergymen against King and his methods, challenging King and members of the movement to just be a little more patient and not use their direct action confrontational methods. The letter provoked King, and he began to write a response. And um, he actually literally wrote it in the margins of the newspaper because he didn't have anything else. And I really want to read the whole thing, but I just heard it read aloud, and it did take an hour. Um, It's hard to do this, but I'm going to excerpt. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. And his language is dated. We'll just say that. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner or the alt-right movement, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season, Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. And picking up again, let me take note of my other major disappointment. I have been so greatly disappointed with the white church and its leadership. Of course, there are some notable exceptions, but despite those notable exceptions, I must honestly reiterate that I've been disappointed with the church. And I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say this as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who was nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings, and who will remain true to it as long as the cord of life shall lengthen. When I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery, Alabama a few years ago, I felt we would be supported by the white church. I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be among our strongest allies. Instead, some have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent because the because the anesthesia I can't say this word anesthesia but the adjective form of that word that kind of security of stained glass windows or no windows in spite of my shattered dreams, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause and with deep moral concern would serve as the channel through which our just grievances could reach the power structure I'd hoped that each of you would understand. But again, I've been disappointed. In the midst of blatant injustices afflicted upon the Negro, I've watched white churchmen stand on the sideline and mouth 
pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo, far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. And then the conclusion, and there's approximately 55 more minutes that you should really hear of this. If I have said anything in this letter that overstates the truth and indicates an unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. If I have said anything that understates the truth and indicates my having a patience that allows me to settle for anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. I hope this letter finds you strong in the faith. I also hope that circumstances will soon make it possible for me to meet each of you, not as an integrationist or a civil rights leader, but as a fellow clergyman and a Christian brother. Let us all hope that the dark clouds of racial prejudice will soon pass away and the deep fog of misunderstanding will be lifted from our fear-drenched communities. And in some not-too-distant tomorrow, the radiant stars of love and brotherhood And I know he would say sisterhood and siblinghood and kinhood in these days. The radiant stars of love and kinship will shine over our great nation with all their scintillating beauty. Yours for the cause of peace and brotherhood and kinship. Martin Luther King Jr. Tuesday, during the day, I spent some quality time with our scriptures for this morning, still stirred by King's words in that letter from jail. I noticed that Matthew's version of the start of Jesus' public ministry, that's what we heard today, Matthew's version. I noticed that it begins with the detail that John the baptizer had been arrested and taken to jail. (laughs) From that time on, Matthew writes, Jesus began to proclaim, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And these are the exact words that Matthew puts on the lips of John, the baptizer, earlier in the gospel. So John is jailed, and Jesus picks up the baton, echoing the exact same words of John. Eventually, of course, Jesus will also be jailed, and both will die at the hands of the state. Same might be said of King. And in all cases, in all cases, the movement carries on. Even as leaders are jailed, even as leaders are executed or assassinated, people pick up where they left off, turning faces and bodies and wills and spirits toward the good news of freedom, toward the good news of a just peace, toward the good news of God's reign and a kingdom of heaven that has come, is coming, will continue to come near, toward the good news of a God who will defeat oppression. For all people and all time. Tuesday evening, I went to a public taping of the podcast Blabbermouth. It's the Strangers podcast. First ever public taping. And it included a special guest, Pramila Jayapal, one of our U.S. congressional representatives. And the echoing message from me that I heard that night 
number of things stick with me, but the echoing thing I heard was Saturday's march, which was still upcoming at that point, will be effective insofar as it inspires its marchers to ongoing action. This is not a moment, it's the movement. Shout out to Hamilton. On Wednesday, I had a day-long conversation with a group of ecumenical pastors from across Seattle at Seattle University, where we gathered for lunch and dialogue, imagining together what shared Christian witness looks like in our time and in our place. How do we find ways to gather from our many diversities and witness together? Good conversation. And echoes from earlier in the week, I thought, a call for unity, a la Birmingham white clergy style? I'm not interested in that kind of call for unity. May that not be so. May there be something more robust in our shared witness. Thursday, I spent some more quality time with our scriptures, and I pondered Matthew's use of Isaiah, which we heard this morning. At this powerful point of initiation where Jesus launches into his public ministry, Matthew turns to Isaiah, chapter 9, where the prophet addressed those who were living in anguish. That's what Isaiah says. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined for the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor, you, God, have broken as on the day of Midian. In the deep and shadowy anguish of exile, the prophet Isaiah proclaims a God whose purpose has always been and will always be to bring light and illumination into places of death and destruction. A God whose purpose has always been and will always be to break that yoke of oppression borne by this world's survivors. A God whose purpose has always been and will always be to call to account all people for the injustices wrought in their name. In the deep and shadowy anguish of Roman occupation, Matthew picks up these ancient words. Isaiah's ancient proclamation at the moment of introducing Jesus' public ministry. He's wanting to link Jesus with this much older proclamation of the God whose purpose always has been and always will be to bring light, to break yokes of oppression, and to call to account. In the deep and shadowy anguish that many of us are feeling, as fears about the values that our new U.S. president will tout and legislate begin to be realized, in cabinet appointments and promises of cuts to budgets and resources for our country's most vulnerable, I repeat Isaiah's proclamation, repeated also by Matthew, proclaiming a God whose purpose has always been and will always be to bring light and illumination into places of death and destruction, to break the yoke of oppression borne by this world's survivors and to call to account all people for the injustices wrought in their name. On Friday, I received the gift of Sabbath with John, a Sabbath that included Seward Park third-place books and some delicious food. And on Saturday, 
I marched with hundreds of thousands here in Seattle, including many of you, and with millions across the world. Did you see that photo from Antarctica? (laughs) And instead of just resisting, we are also proclaiming. Instead of just saying what we're against, we say what we are for. We are for good news to the poor. We are for release proclaimed to captives. We are for sight for the blind. We are for liberation for all who are oppressed. We are for stitching ourselves and our dreams together across our many diversities. We are for a God whose purpose has always been and will always be to bring light and illumination to places of death and destruction, to break the yoke of oppression borne by this world's survivors, and to call to account all people for the injustices wrought in their name. People of God, let us follow in the way of the one who came to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Turn. That's what repent means. Revolution. Something that happens never just once, but over and over and over again through a lifetime of turning. May our hearts and minds be transformed, reorganizing our lives to more fully reflect the vision of God's justice and God's peace so that those who walk in deep and shadowy anguish may indeed see a great light. May it be so. Amen.